Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global, with a message entitled, Knowing the Truth. So turn with me in our Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There is a myth that has received a great deal of traction in our day. The myth states that there are a number of competing accounts of the life of Jesus, but that the church strong-armed their way and excluded all sorts of accounts of Jesus that never made it into the Bible. So this idea that the early church was able to eradicate competing accounts of Jesus by, by the way, even though there's no evidence that it's so, this myth has in some fashion found its way into so many people's thinking. I mean, what about the Gospel of Thomas, people ask, and what about the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, or even further, what about the Gospel of Judas? I mean, why are those Gospels suppressed? Well, in truth, we only have four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. Yeah, we do have some far later accounts of Jesus, not the product of eyewitnesses, nor even the product of historical research. Rather, these later Gospels, a great many of them at least, are what we call the Gnostic Gospels. Gnosticism was a religious philosophy that had become quite popular in the fourth century. And so it is true that there were some who wanted a portrayal of Jesus that was acceptable among the Gnostics. But as I've said, this is an attempt to recast Jesus into a new philosophy not an attempt to understand Jesus within his historical context. But let's put that matter aside for a moment and see whether or not the early church really cared about getting the message right. You know, in our study of the book of Acts, we've seen that from the moment of Jesus' resurrection, this matter of bringing the message of Jesus to the world seemed to have been uppermost in the disciples' minds. And if, to put it into language we might understand, it, it was evident that the early apostles wanted to mass produce the message, making it as widely available as possible. So it's no small question to ask whether the church was interested in accuracy or whether they were interested in adapting the message so that it would easily fit into various cultures. I think it's a very important question. You know, some years ago, my wife Kathy and I, you know, along with some friends, decided to spend some holiday time in the nation of Peru. And I was interested to learn something of the Incas and, you know, about the ancient cultures that once were a part of that part of the world. And to my amazement, I found that many Roman Catholic churches had simply adapted Inca worship and practices right into the mass. Inca pagan symbols were in great many churches. We had one guide who, upon visiting one ancient site, poured out an offering to one of the Inca gods. And I asked him to explain what he had just done. Instead of explaining it, he told me that he had asked his priest, who had told him that it was acceptable for a Christian to show reverence and worship to the Inca deities. So I raise that issue not to enter into a debate right now. As we're going to see when we later get to Acts 4 verse 12, the apostles are very certain of one basic truth. They thought there was no other name under heaven by which we might be saved. That's a long discussion. I can't engage in it here, but we will later. Suffice it now to say that the question of literal accuracy or a care to keep the accounts of Jesus true, accurate, undiluted by other thought systems and unchanged, that was a question that we face in the first chapter of Acts. 
The missionary movement hasn't begun yet. So will the apostles be careful to be factual and accurate? You know, the last section of Acts 1 deals with just this issue. But before we begin to read, we need to do a bit of review by what is meant by an apostle. The Greek word is simply a reference to one who is sent or reference to a messenger. In the ministry of Jesus, however, the term apostle was used in a very specialized sense. So listen to Mark 3, 13 to 15. And he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, from this passage, we should note five things about apostles. One, they were directly appointed by Jesus. That is, they were the ones he desired. And that means to say that no one ever proclaimed himself to be an apostle. Rather, Jesus had to appoint you. Two, they personally witnessed all that Jesus did. And as we're going to see, this becomes essential in Acts. No one should ever be given the title apostle unless that person is an eyewitness of Jesus. Three, they were called to be with him, that is to be trained directly by him. And so, as we're going to see when we get to chapter four, these men, according to their enemies, were uneducated and common men. But of course, they weren't uneducated at all. For three years, they had been personally trained by the Son of God. And thus, I would say they had a much better education than anyone trained at Harvard, Oxford, or Cambridge. Number four, they were given a unique authority to both preach and drive out demons. That's what Jesus said. And of course, Matthew records how when they went out on their first ministry assignment, Jesus, in response to their activity, says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And finally, five, there were only 12 of them. Jesus, says Mark, appointed the 12 apostles. Now, in the New Testament, that's the definition of an apostle, those five things. And if you should ask, well, why then is Paul called an apostle? You should know that's a very good question. And I leave that discussion for another time, except now to say Paul always claimed that the risen Jesus had appeared to him and that for three years, the resurrected Jesus mentored him. Well, you can read Paul's argument for that in the book of Galatians. But now is not the time to speak about the unique case of Paul. I leave that for another time. But the question of having apostles is the very case I've just made. You know, someone in the early church must be given the authority to speak accurately and authoritatively about and on behalf of Jesus. If a disagreement arose in the future, as the church was reaching out to the world, who would speak for Jesus? Look again at the beginning of the book of Acts, the first two verses, something we've already read, but let's look at it again. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to whom? To the apostles whom he had chosen. That is, says Luke, as he writes Theophilus, what I'm recording is a history carefully researched, a history that was explained by the apostles. That's why much later in 1 Timothy 6, verse 20, Paul writes Timothy and he says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So the deposit, well, that's the message that's entrusted to the apostles and carefully preserved by them. Future generations would be called upon to fight the fight to make sure 
that the original deposit was never distorted or changed in any fashion at all. You can't change the message under any circumstances. It's been once for all given. And it seems quite clear from the very outset that the apostles were self-consciously aware of their unique role and the necessity to take leadership in the early church. But as we know, Judas, one of the 12, has become a traitor, and that's left the number of the apostles now down to 11. And in the minds of the 11, that presents a problem. And is with this as a background that we're now ready to read our text. So I'm reading the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now, of course, the context is that the 11 have just seen Jesus ascend to heaven. They're left standing on the Mount of Olives. When Luke says that they are a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem, he's referring to how far a faithful Jew was allowed to walk on the Sabbath, which would have been about a kilometer. The upper room, well, we can't be sure if it's the same upper room where they celebrated the Passover, but it might have been. And the 11 seemed quite aware that Jesus had instructed them not to leave Jerusalem, so they're going to remain there in prayer until the promise of the Holy Spirit comes. And at that time, they're joined by Mary. She's the mother of Jesus. And then also they're joined by Jesus' four brothers. You know, according to 1 Corinthians 15, James, who was the oldest of the brothers, had not believed in Jesus during his ministry. And then after the resurrection, Jesus had met with him, and James then becomes a follower of Jesus. Also, the group of women who followed Jesus in his ministry are there as well. So they're praying, and they're awaiting the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Carissa wrote to say, Thank you, Dr. John Newfeld for consistently providing deeply meaningful and theologically rich Bible teaching. I have particularly appreciated the new video series. It is encouraging to my spirit to hear words of truth and hope through his teaching. Thank you for continuing your work of faithfully proclaiming God's Word. We've been so grateful to introduce Back to the Bible Canada's new weekly video Bible teaching series. Each week, Dr. Neufeld searches deeply into God's Word, seeking truth for living a life that glorifies God. All of these programs can be viewed online or by subscribing to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel, where both new and previous series can be accessed. And when you visit, don't forget to subscribe to the channel. For more information about every ministry resource or to support this ministry financially, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. At some point in time, and we're not told how, But the company of people awaiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit seems to have grown from what Luke describes as a relatively small group to what now becomes a group of 120. 
I mean, word of Jesus' ascension has gotten out, and there's an expectation that the end of the ages might well yet be upon them. And at the very least, the era of the Holy Spirit was about to dawn, and with that would come the mission for world evangelization. So clearly, the group of 11 and Mary and the four brothers of Jesus and the women, a group which I think couldn't have been over 20, suddenly swells to a group of 120. And they're all in prayer, and they're preparing their hearts for the next great epoch in human history. So we read Acts 1, 15 to 20. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Now, before we seek to understand the drama, let's stop and consider a very basic factual matter. Peter in his speech indicates that Judas fell headlong, presumably in the field which he had purchased through his blood money and that his intestines or his bowels gushed out. Now, at the outset, that seems like a contradiction and the first point of contested truth about what actually happened in the ministry of Jesus. I mean, if the apostles can't even get the story straight about what happened to Judas, how are they supposed to be trusted on the intricacies of Jesus' teaching? And so it's a very important point. According to Matthew 27, Judas went out and hanged himself. And so Matthew, one of the apostles, says that Judas hanged himself, and Peter says he fell headlong in a field and his guts gushed out. Now, before we understand that, can we admit something? I can't think of ever hearing a story of anyone tripping in a field somewhere and falling down and splitting open his guts. I mean, I I guess it happens in war, but who's ever heard it just happens while somebody's wandering through a field? I mean, that's got to be a very rare thing to happen. Well, most Bible teachers agree that there is a very likely scenario that accounts for this and proves that both Matthew and Peter are right. Matthew said Judas went out and hanged himself, and we have to assume, given the chaos of the events, there's no one left to take his body down. He dies hanging in a tree and would have been left there for some time. We have to imagine his body swelling in the hot Near Eastern sun, and it's bloating. Eventually, his body simply begins to rot, falls from the rope, falls into the field and his bowels split out. It's an awful mess, the nature of which the disciples simply can't forget. Peter doesn't mention the hanging. He mentions the splitting open of the bowels to illustrate the end of a man who betrayed the Son of God. But let's get back to the story. Peter says Judas in his betrayal fulfilled scripture. And then later he quotes both Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Now, when it comes to Psalm 69, Peter knew that Jesus himself had quoted from this psalm. When he had cleansed the temple, Jesus quoted from verse 9a. He said, zeal for your house will consume me. And later, Paul would quote this psalm in relationship to Jesus, verse 9, the insults of those who insult you have fallen upon me. Indeed, when it comes to the passion and suffering of Jesus, Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 are quoted most often. And Peter is in that stream when, speaking of the suffering of Jesus, 
He quotes verse 25 because it speaks of those who would have no pity on the Messiah. Verse 25, may his camp be desolate. That's why Peter makes so much of the end of Judas' corpse. It speaks of his desolation. It speaks of the view that God himself has thrown Judas aside, left him rotting in the field. A field that was probably bought by the Jewish religious authorities on behalf of Judas. But then Peter does something that surprises us. He next turns to Psalm 109, verse 8. And that psalm begins by describing wicked and deceitful mouths that speak against me with lying tongues. And then speaking of this persecutor, verse 8 says, may his days be few and may another take his office. So clearly, Peter believes that the 12th apostle is an office that has been vacated, waiting for someone else to take it. In Peter's mind, the 12th office of the apostles must be filled. But here we come back to the requirements of an apostle. And again, I refer to this not only because our text refers to this, but also you know, because there are some today who claim the office of an apostle. Now, many of you know that Romanism claims that the Pope stands in Peter's office, so the Pope is an apostle. And there are some other denominations and movements in which key leaders refer to themselves as apostles. And when that happens, each of us needs to ask and answer a very serious question. Is this person now called a contemporary apostle? Is that person an eyewitness of Jesus? Have they seen and witnessed Jesus' ministry? Was that person directly taught by Jesus? And therefore, can that person speak inerrantly without error in any respects about the ministry of Jesus with perfect recall? (laughs) You can already hear in my tone that I deny there are any living apostles today. There are plenty of frauds, but there are no living apostles. In Ephesians 2, verse 20, Paul says that the apostles are the foundation of the church. So Paul's imagining the church like a building that's built on a sure and enduring and solid, immovable foundation. Well, then, just like any building, you don't keep laying the foundation every generation. Instead, you build on top of it. But Peter's also convinced that the 12th office needs to be filled for the foundation to be complete. So we read now Acts 1, 21 and 22. And Peter's still speaking. He says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. Now, here again, we move back to a basic and fundamental definition of an apostle and why the apostolic office is once for all and not to be repeated. According to Peter, you can't have an apostle if that apostle has not been an eyewitness of the earthly ministry of Jesus. Now, of course, as we've already seen, an apostle must also have had to been directly trained by Jesus. And we have to assume then that Jesus not only spent time training the 12, but there would have been others who followed him and who watched, who took note, who obeyed, trusted, allowed their lives to be transformed by Jesus. Let's keep reading. Acts 1, 23 to 26. And they put forward two, Joseph called Bersabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. It seems to me that there must have been only two potential candidates. 
So you have to imagine that these two men were well known to the apostles in all the three years where they were being trained by Jesus. The Bible never actually mentions them, but of course, as John reminded us, Jesus did so many other things that he supposed that all the books in the world wouldn't be able to hold all that Jesus did and taught. And so these two men were there at every point in time. Undoubtedly, both of these men were very highly thought of by the eleven, and it's clear they couldn't decide between the two. And so they resort to an Old Testament custom of casting lots, and the lot falls on Matthias, and he's appointed to the ministry. You know, Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, and its every decision is from the Lord. No doubt, the apostles are convinced that God, who is meticulously sovereign, has made his decision. Now, since this incident, many people have debated whether the apostles did the right thing here. I mean, should they have chosen Matthias in the first place? Shouldn't they have waited? And in due course, Jesus would himself appoint Paul. That matters a good discussion, but I'm going to argue that Paul is a most unique apostle. He's a one-off, or as Paul would say it, one unnaturally born. I'm content with the decision for Matthias. But this all brings us to a wonderful conclusion. Before the Holy Spirit came and their mission was launched, the apostles together had to agree on one thing. Under no circumstances will we ever be permitted to veer from the events or the actual message of Jesus. We must be accurate down to the detail, and we must insist that the only one who tells this story will be one who has been an eyewitness. Above all, let's protect the integrity of what we have. John, help me understand something. Uh, A question that I've heard other people ask as well. Why does it appear that some books are left out of the Bible? You know, Ben, it's always difficult to answer that question because I don't always know, you know, from what framework a person is asking, but let's just simply say it very easily. Um, What we have in the New Testament are the writings of the apostles and the prophets, and the prophets being those people directly under the tutelage of the apostles. So these are individuals who are first-generation eyewitnesses, and all of the apostolic writings, as well as the writing of the prophets in that sense, are included in Scripture. Not one is missing. Thanks, John. That helps. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. These are challenging days. Many, some our neighbors, family, friends, find themselves in difficulty they would not have imagined only a few months ago. In times of crisis, we often find ourselves searching for something or somewhere to place our confidence. And for many, that means a considered rediscovery of their faith. Maybe you're experiencing this yourself. I know for Back to the Bible, these days have provided a stark reminder of the need, privilege, and opportunity to represent Jesus Christ through the teaching of the Bible. In short, it's reinforced for us the need to keep showing up, to remain faithful in declaring the trustworthy Bible teaching you've come to expect. Wherever people are searching, we want to be there. Your continued support of all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada is essential. God's people across Canada recognizing the times and responding with the truth of God's Word. To discover more about Back to the Bible Canada or to offer a gift to support, 
Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.